61 with me. I do have the, the text there for you on the insert. Please have that or your Bibles open so you can follow along. I know I'm attempting uh, a lot of verses. These are full oracles. Um, scholars agree this is a good chapter division as far as the content goes. Um, this is highlighting a span of ministry that lasted 50 years for the prophet, and it's a development of ideas and thoughts as we have been studying. Um, so we are at Isaiah 61. I want to remind you that next week is the day that we remember, at least the Lord's Day, that we remember the Reformation. This is the 500th year anniversary of that time when Martin Luther uh, nailed the 95 Thesis to the Castle Door uh, Church at, at Wittenberg. And so we remember that as kind of the, the, that point in time in which it really uh, took off. And so we have a special guest speaker, as we do most Reformation Sundays. Dr. Guy Waters is from the Reformed Theological Seminary. He's one of the premier um, scholars on justification by faith, the doctrine, the New Testament doctrine. It's the biblical doctrine of, but he is a professor of New Testament there, and he will be preaching in the morning services. Then we have a joint service in the evening with the uh, KCR churches, and Dr. Waters will preach there also. And we will still have our evening service in Lee Summit next week also. So it's a busy Reformation Sunday, uh, like most Sundays next week. Now with that, I want us to uh, turn now again to Isaiah, Isaiah 61. Um, earlier in the book of Isaiah, the picture of Messiah, the anointed one, was becoming clearer um, from the earliest uh, revelation of Jesus in chapter 7, then chapter 9, chapter 11. Remember one advent, several, two advents ago, if you can believe that, we were at Isaiah 11, it's all about Jesus. Then we get into the servant songs, the faithful servant, four of them, that uh, come to a, a head in Isaiah 53, where we have the picture of the suffering servant. So interwoven between God calling out the people for their sin, calling them to repentance, telling them how discipline will happen, and calling to the nations to recognize the only way they can have salvation is through Israel's God and Israel's Savior. Um, All of this throughout paints a bigger and better and clearer picture of the Messiah to come. So now we come to 61, and we have... Jesus as the anointed messenger. It tells us a bit of what he would do in his earthly ministry, which we have been able to witness through the testimony of Scripture, and uh, what he is doing now as he's seated at the right hand of God, and what will still come. There's a mixture of all these things, especially in these last chapters of Isaiah. So please follow as I read God's inspired and inerrant word, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a a beautiful headdress instead of ashes the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks, Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. 
but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we approach this passage having already witnessed the first coming of Messiah and his finished work of redemption that was forecasted in this book so many years before it happened. And now we find ourselves in these times engaged in seeing the expansion of your kingdom, being part of its building, part of the fulfillment of what is pictured here before us. And Lord, we do this and we engage in this until he comes again. Lord, please elevate our view of our Messiah. Elevate our view of Jesus' transformational work in the life of his church and in this world. And Lord, for those who may be brokenhearted, those who are poor, those who are held captive by sin. Free them by knowing Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I know when people are asked what their favorite story in the Bible is, uh, they usually, usually will give some big miracle story. I won't ever answer you what my favorite one is. I'll give you a bunch of them if you ask. But they're not typical of what most people will say. And that just comes from something about my own personal view of, of the narrative of Scripture, if you will. The story that God tells in the Bible. How amazing the spans of years are between events. And yet he fulfills these things. I mean, we look back at, we look back at Jesus' life and say, that's 2,000 years ago. We think that's so long ago. Maybe this, you know, when's that thing's ever going to happen the way it says it'll happen in the Bible? Or when it, well, remember, Abraham lived in 2000 BC. Jesus came, you know, right at the beginning of the first century, of course. That's 2000 years. So it's a long, these years don't mean anything to God. But for me, who I'm very impatient. So I'm amazed by these spans of years. And so sometimes little, little, episodes in scripture that record the fulfillment of something that was thousands of years old. It just stops me when I read it. I'm just amazed by the depth of it. And one such occasion happens in relationship to Isaiah 61. Our Lord Jesus had just been baptized. So that is for the anointing or the inauguration of his earthly ministry. It wasn't for the reasons we are baptized. It was to show he was beginning his earthly ministry. 
And so one of the first things he does, he goes up north to where he was born and raised, where people knew him. Now they knew him to be a profound speaker and teacher. He was a carpenter, but people knew Jesus. Uh, But they didn't know him as a rabbi as such, although he had started taking to going to synagogues and reading and teaching right off at the beginning of his ministry. So he goes up to Nazareth, where he was raised, and he goes into that local synagogue. Those are the local places of worship for the Jewish people at that time. They became the first churches. And in those places, the setup would be pretty simple, a big room on the front, a little bit of an elevated spot in some cases, depending where they were. And they would have this table off to the side that had scrolls hanging from it, which was uh, much of the Old Testament in scroll form. And so with that picture in mind, uh, here's Jesus in Nazareth, and listen to the text in Luke 4. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given him, and he enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And now before I read what he read, what he spoke, there would have been multiple scrolls with Isaiah on it. The whole 66 chapters wasn't in one scroll. We know this because when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, there are multiple scrolls in those jars that contain the whole of the gospel of Isaiah. Well, he knows which one, the attendant gives him which one. We don't know exactly how it works, but he, maybe they're up to that reading. He takes it and he finds his place in it, so he's familiar with it. And then where does he go? He goes to Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus reads, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stops. So he only, reads, he only reads up to the second half of verse 2, and he stops. Now, there's purpose for that. We'll get to it in a moment. Uh, but this is what's so proud, profound, and this is what makes this one of the more amazing pictures in Scripture. He rolled up the scroll after just reading that small portion. He gave it back to the attendant, and then he sat down. And now everybody's waiting for him to do the exposition, because that was typically done from a seated position. All eyes on the synagogue were fixed on him. What is he going to say? Why did he read those two verses? And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, we've been in Isaiah long enough. That should amaze all of us. Because he picked 61. Why does he pick 61? He could have picked 7, 9, 11, 42, 48, 50, 52, 53. Why did he pick 61? Because 61 depicts the anointed messenger, the one who has done the work that the Father accepts, the one who is the spokesperson for God, God himself visiting man, doing what the Israelites couldn't do. It's, at 61, this is the matured view of the Messiah now and what he will do in and through his people. And so by claiming 61 for himself, he claims all the rest for himself. Nobody was unaware of what he was saying. He was saying, I am the Messiah, the anointed servant, the anointed messenger, spoken of in this gospel of Isaiah. And he takes just one and a half verses to show you exactly where he is in this whole depiction of what Messiah will do. It is deep and it is profound. And I hope all the time you've invested in listening to this this exposition of Isaiah, you can appreciate all the more now what it means when Jesus says this. And he takes this chapter, these verses that we're studying right now, and he reads them in the synagogue and says, it's me. It's amazing how smart scholars are uh, when they still argue of who is Isaiah talking about in Isaiah 61? Really? I mean, seriously, guys? I mean, Jesus tells us. This isn't Tony reading it into it or other 
people reading into it. This is Christ himself telling us, this is him, which wraps up all of the messianic prophecies into him here in this chapter. What a picture it is, as the Lord's anointed messenger uh, is proclaimed in Isaiah 61, that he will come and transform his people and do his worldwide work through them. He'll transform his people starting narrowly, then he'll expand it through the Gentiles, it'll multiply it through shining light through his people. That's the picture that starts to unfold for us in the rest of Isaiah with only six chapters left. Let's look at his transforming work that's predicted, and we get the benefit of hindsight now looking and seeing how it was fulfilled. But the Messiah's transforming work, really to verse 5, I say verse 4 in the outline, but it's really to verse 5. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, verse 1. Jesus, of course, claims this for himself. This is Isaiah speaking of what Messiah would say in the future. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is a simple statement, but it's one of the clearest Old Testament expressions of the Trinity that we have. The servant is speaking. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon him. That's the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord God, the Lord Jehovah, or actually it's the Lord Yahweh here. That's God the Father. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what's connected even more vividly to what Jesus does in Luke 4 by reading this text? Just before it, he was baptized. And at his baptism, it was the clearest depiction of the Trinity on earth. When the, the voice of the Father reigns from heaven, the Spirit descends on him like a dove, and he's there in the baptismal waters, and the Father says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And the baptism represents his anointing to do the work. He's anointed to bring good news. And so this picture here, uh, 700 years before Jesus came on earth, um, gives us clarity about the Trinity's involvement in the work of the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Um, the anointed one means Messiah. Um, Christ is just the Greek word for Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. I love what the Heidelberg Catechism does in capturing um, all the Bible's teaching about the term Messiah or the term anointed. The question goes, why is he called Christ, meaning anointed? And the answer is, because he has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who perfectly reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God for our deliverance, our only high priest, who has set us free by the one sacrifice of his body and who continually pleads our cause with the Father and our eternal king, who governs us by his word and spirit, who guards us and keeps us in the freedom that he has won for us. That's all the Bible teaches about the anointed one, the Messiah. And we're introduced to him in a fresh light here in Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. What does he, what does he come for? To bring good news. That's, that's number one. That, that is the driving baseline for what Christ does, to bring good news. And he brings it to the poor. Which, by the way, aren't just people that don't have money. In fact, it's not what it's meant to be on the first level. God has great concern for such people, for sure. But recognize that when he piles these descriptions, he wants to capture everybody who's honest about themselves because you fit into one of these categories. But notice, he came to bring good news. What's the good news? The anointed messenger is the message. He is the good news. 
So the anointed messenger brings the the news that he has come to do the work that we could not do so that we would be right with God. So the messenger um, is the message itself. And so he brings good news. Good news, you can be right with God through the messenger. That's his good news. That's what he brings. And so how does he bring it? Or who does he bring it to, I should say? It says... He came to bind up the up broken heart, the brokenhearted. He came to proclaim liberty to captives. He came to open prisons for those who are bound. So those who are in poverty, those who have broken hearts, those who are captivated by something other than God, those who are bound up and in prison. That's everyone in humanity apart from Christ. And anybody who hears this, who knows they're in that spot, and they only know it because God makes them know it, they recognize it and they say, that's good news. Who's good news? The anointed messenger. He's the one, and he's the one who comes to bring these things. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now, he uses these, these vivid terms that would have been in the minds of any, any Israelite in those days. Uh, they knew what it was like to be in poverty, uh, to be brokenhearted, to see all the, the hurt and difficulty around them, the oppression around them. They knew what it was like to be enslaved or captive to another nation, what it might even be to be in prison. They knew all that, but that's temporal. The real good news will free you from all of that in an eternal sense, and that is what the anointed messenger comes. That's why he's so different from every, every other prophet, from any other king, from any other priest. This is the anointed messenger, God the Son himself. And what does he come to do? Proclaim the good news, to Bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty, open prison doors. And verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now keep in mind, this is where Jesus stops when he is in a synagogue. He doesn't read the rest of it. It's not that it doesn't apply, but that wasn't yet to come. It has since, but at that moment, he was letting the people know, I have come to fulfill this first portion of what Isaiah reveals about Messiah. I have come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Well, any Jewish mind would know what this means. The year of the Lord's favor is the jubilee year from Leviticus 25. Remember, they're thinking mosaic. They're thinking under the old covenant of Moses. And the year of jubilee is is one of those few grace points people really could sense in the law. And that is it allowed um, every 50 years for a special um, loosening of debts that you had. It typically would only happen once in a person's life if it's once every 50 years. And at that time, there would be special allowances for debts to uh, that were unpaid to go forgiven, and for land debts and all sorts of uh, different things that were freedom without having work to do on your part because you couldn't do it. It's a great picture of God's grace. And so Jesus is uh, applying to himself jubilee. He's saying, I'm here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I am here to tell you about the forgiveness of sins that you can have through me, that he has come to release us from our sin debt. That's what he's saying about himself. This is me that's spoken about in Isaiah. The year of Jubilee, or the year of the Lord's favor, is me coming so that you can be free from your debt sin that you could never pay, but I will pay it for you. That's what he's declaring in his coming, and that's where the text stops. It goes on to say, and the day of the vengeance, day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. So now he's speaking of something that's still to come. Now, let's pause for a moment and remember something about prophecy. I may have said something like this to you over the course of the last couple years. I don't remember. It's been a while since we've been in Isaiah, uh, which has been a great thing as far as I'm concerned. I love every time I get to Monday morning, open it up again to get ready for the next Sunday. 
Um, but something you have to know about prophecy that will help you, it's helped me. Think in terms of a mountain range. When you're driving in Colorado and you see the mountains at distance and you can maybe name the peaks, they look close together. They almost look like you could skip across them. Now, if you climb any mountains, you know that's not how they are. A couple of years back, my brother-in-law, who's trying to climb all 54, 55, 14,000-foot peaks in Colorado, suckered me into, I mean, asked me into climbing a mountain with him again. I've done a few with him. I, I, I get like half a mile into it. I'm like, why am I doing this with this guy? I mean, anyways... We're climbing to the top of Mount Chavano. Now, right ne- next to Mount Chavano is uh, Mount Tabawa. And Tabawa, they're supposed to be twin peaks. The whole idea among mountain climbers is you can knock off two 14,000 foot peaks in one afternoon. I've climbed a few, but I mean, it takes me the whole day and then uh, 10 days to recover. That's, that's my approach to mountain climbing. So I'm thinking I'll do one. We'll see what happens when we get to the top. I'm near death when we get to the top. And he looks over the other one. He goes, look, Tony, it's not that far away. We should go over to it. Now, it's true. We drove up. It didn't look that far away. I admit, for a second, I thought to myself, this shouldn't be that hard. I could get two in. I mean, I'm not a mountain climber, so I can go. I mean, all mountain climbers are incredibly skinnier than I am. I mean, a lot of people are skinnier than I am. But, like, when it comes to mountain climbing, the more weight you take up, the worse it is. So I thought, if I could do two, what bragging rights would that be? But when I got on top, I saw another 1,000-foot decline just to get off the, that top, another 1,000 to get up to the next one. It was like a, a mile across. That's not close. It looked close, but it's not close. Okay, that's how prophecy is. The prophet is driving along the mountain range. God shows him the mountain range. He sees these events. They're, they're glorious events. They're events that he wants to tell a beleaguered people, people who are down and they're out. I got a story to tell you, Isaiah says. Uh, we should repent because God's doing great things, and he will do great things. And he'll do this, and he'll do this, and he'll do this, and he describes Messiah and the work of Messiah, what Messiah will do. What he doesn't know even himself, most likely, is how much time happens between. Even in individual chapters, he's describing things that happen for them in the future, because Jesus had not yet come. Then for us, some of it's fulfilled Some of it happened and is ongoing, it's still working, where he's drawn the nations through his people. We saw that a bit last chapter, I hope you remember that. He shines a light through his people, his glory shines through his people, he adds more people, and that's what he's doing in building his people up. And it's quite um, distinct from what the nations might do to oppress us. He still grows his church. In fact, even in places where it's more oppressed, it grows more. And so he shows his glory this way, and he's doing this work until finally he consummates all things when Jesus returns the final time. Um, But Isaiah just gives one big victorious picture, so knowing exactly where each aspect is fulfilled, that's a challenge. But he stops at the first half of verse 2, and then the second part goes on to say, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. That day started when Jesus came. The, day, the great day of the Lord, or the, the, the time in which he would come and visit his judgment, it overlaps with his call to salvation, his accomplishment of salvation, his growth of the church. At the same time, that presence of God through his church brings a certain judgmental light on those who don't believe, on the unbelieving world, that will build up to a final consummated day of judgment that runs together with his exaltation of himself through his church at the same time as judgment of those who don't believe who rebel against him. In his coming, Jesus brings judgment, but he also brings comfort to those who have been mourning. That's what it says in the second part of verse 2. Now into verse 3. To grant those who mourn in Zion, to to give them 
a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, to, to lift them up from their place of humiliation. The oil of gladness instead of mourning, um, knowing Messiah had come and fulfilled. I see this old man, Simeon, who is able to hold Jesus as a young child, and he realizes after his life of mourning for the, the woes of sinful Israel that now he can be perked up and see that Messiah has come, and how that continues to lift our spirits as we consider Jesus, his first coming, and then his yet to come. Uh, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. There can be a boldness now through Christ, through the anointed messenger, that they may be called oaks of righteousness. Earlier in chapter 1, I wish we had time to go back, 26 to 31, it talks about how Israel become a leafless oak, a weak oak. And now it's saying that they will be called oaks of righteousness. This is the building up of his saints, the transforming of his saints he will do, that he will work. The planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Notice, he'll plant us as oaks of righteousness, that he may be glorified. Why? Because there's nothing that we have done to plant ourselves in this way. It has to be a testimony to God's grace. So there's the only person that can get any glory from this would be God. To see us lifted up like this. They shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations, they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. This is both corporate and individual. Corporate in that he will build up his people in a way and will shine the light of, of their existence forth to be a testimony to his praise. That's corporate for sure. But it also is something that we can all relate with. When you come to Christ, when he brings you to himself, you may have ruins behind you, but he can build all that back up, not in the way it was, but now in a new light. And he can give back so much of what's been lost um, with different perspective to appreciate what it is. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Here's more of the Abrahamic covenant language about the way in which he will bless his people. People who were formerly enemies will now be helpers. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. It doesn't mean in some kind of labor sense, in the sense of now they're willingly coming to the people of God in this sense. What a picture of the work that the anointed messenger will do. But I want you to also to see how personal this is. In verse 6 and in verse 7, there is a, a rare personal impact um, reference about Messiah's work. You don't always see that in these big prophetic books, but you see it here. Verse 6, talking to the people of God now, you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. This is reference to the world watching and responding. Uh, People will see the people of God as the priests of the Lord. You shall eat the wealth of nations and and in their glory you shall boast. Um, They will come to know the Lord through us, and we will feast with them over their salvation. That's the picture that's painted. And this is a big deal, brothers and sisters, to call regular people priests. Um, Priests in the Old Testament were very distinct from the people. They were one tribe. Really, you had to be of one uh, genealogy even. And so those people were there to keep the temple and the temple worship. You would bring your sacrifices to the priests. They would do the sacrifice that symbolized how your sins would be forgiven by the future Messiah. Only priests can, could go as a mediator between God and man in the sense of how they maintain the temple symbolism and worship. This text is forecasting that through the anointed messenger, we would be priests. We would be ministers to our God. How is this so? We would be mediators between the world and Christ. Not in the sense of the sacrifice, 
but the mouthpiece or the way they would know who Christ is. It's not dependent on a priesthood anymore. You're all priests in Christ. And that's what, that's what we'll be known as. That's the, that has always been the plan of God was to work through the narrow to then go wide through the Gentiles and make every individual believer a mediator or a go-between so people could know how they could be right with God through our anointed messenger, Christ. This language should not surprise you when you think of what you even know of the Old Testament. Remember in the time of Moses, which was several hundred years before Isaiah's time, this word came from the Lord through Moses to the people of God. And you'll note right away where there's a problem, but then I hope by now you can make the connect. He says, now therefore, this is Exodus 19, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Every time I read a conditional aspect of the covenant, I'm always a little depressed. Man, they didn't do it. People like to read the next part. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's fine, but you've got to read the first part. The first part said, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Absolutely, the covenant was completely conditional, and we failed it. But Christ did not. Christ kept the covenant perfectly. He did exactly what God told the people of God to do, and they couldn't do. He did it. Jesus did it. So now in Christ, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. This is God through Moses telling the people of God. For all the earth is mine. He's forecasting a time when this will be true. And you shall be, future, to me a kingdom, a priest, and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Why is this so important, church? Listen. After Jesus comes, we see other forecasts like this in Isaiah. There's one in Ezekiel where it forecasts that we'll be priests. Peter, the apostle Peter, of all failures, sees what God has done by sending his spirit and starts to grow his church. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, listen to what he says in the present tense. Well, we just read his future tense. Now in the present tense, Peter says, but you, the church, this isn't just Jews, this is Jews and Gentiles, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you, why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you see how connected the Old Testament and the New Testament are? It's one message of salvation. One's just looking forward to how it'll be fulfilled and lived out. Now we're seeing it be lived out. But make no mistake, it's the same gospel. It's Christ. And it's through Christ that we will burn as a light that people see. Why are you saved? Why are you priests and ministers? So that you can proclaim the excellencies of him who saved you, called you from the darkness into his light. That's why. And this is what Isaiah 61 predicts and looks forward to. And we're living in it right now. If you're not living in it, it's your fault because you're not getting out there and being the light you should be. You should be living in it. You should be the light that God's called you to be. And does that mean go out and hand out gospel tracts? No. Just be the person Christ has called you to be. Say no to the things you can now say no to. Say yes to the things you can now say yes to. And only because of his grace. And just by that, you're going to shine. Then you'll get to tell people how to be right with God too. We'll be able to. This isn't just my job. This is a huge relief sermon for me. Because you're priests. And this is one of the cornerstone doctrines of the Reformation. Beyond the central doctrine of we're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Beyond that, the next level is we're priests. The priesthood of all believers. On first level, it means we can all come to worship with one voice. You don't need a mediator 
to come up here and sacrifice things before, and then you are beholden to the church and to me to, for your salvation. That's done away with in Christ. Now we're a kingdom of priests. The priest of all believers, we can worship with one voice. That's why the worship service is supposed to depict one voice, interaction, saying things with one voice to God. But the next level to this is what we find here. The next level is that as the priesthood of all believers, you can mediate the message of Christ to the world. We are all ambassadors. We all have the Spirit of God working in us through the proclamation of his word to go spread this word, to spread this light to the world. What a passage. Isaiah 9, or Exodus 19, you shall be my treasure possession. 1 Peter 2, you are a people for his own possession. Back to verse 6 of Isaiah 61. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord, and they shall speak of you as ministers of our God. I, was, I like to say not to, to belabor it, but no, no, I want to belabor it. Listen to this. In Revelation, the picture of the final consummation of things. In Revelation 1, verse 5 and verse 6. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever. That's a picture of things. In Revelation 5. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take up the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, Christ. And by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. Total fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Jesus transforms his people. You shall be called the priests of the Lord, and they shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. The final verses paint a picture of the Messiah's impact on the world through his people. This is one of those intermixtures of the already, it's happening, and the not yet, it hasn't fully been realized. Verse 8, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense. This is like a statement of, of the ultimate holiness and righteousness and justice of God just being stated. Well, well, what is God to do with us then, if that's the case? Well, he said what he's going to do with us through Christ. He'll bring righteousness through Christ. It says in verse 8, And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Now, the covenantal language for the person in Isaiah's time, it's not that they forgot the Abrahamic covenant, but they were living under the shadow of the Mosaic covenant for the most part. And so there was a bit of that that was meant to, by design, press them into realizing they could not fulfill the law that someone would have to do it for them, and that was what was pictured in the sacrificial system. So when they hear covenant, he's trying to bring their eyes back to what God has promised on this macro level of he will make a people for himself, and he will call them to himself through his son, through his seed, and then eventually the whole world will be blessed. So verse 8, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. It won't be this temporary administration that they knew under the Mosaic. It will be something that is everlasting. The same language that he used with Abraham, an everlasting covenant. I will faithfully give them their recompense and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. God's commitment to save a people and transform a people in order to reach the world. Notice he doesn't just breathe this sigh of righteous relief by saying, I, the Lord, love justice and 
hate robbery and wrong, and now my people will be better than all that. No, he's going to do that work through his people. It's all about him and what he does. But this forecast of Messiah's work should motivate us to want to, in this life, manifest these fruits of the Spirit that he gives. We should, with an elevated view of Messiah, have lives that look really different. Not that we're holier, but that we recognize where strength comes from, where forgiveness is found, who we really are. We can be honest about it. The world sees that and it shocks them. You might think that the world looks at us and says, oh, those are people who think they're holier. And if they don't know us, I can understand that. But if they get to know any of us, we should not be telling that story. We're telling the story of redemption. We're coming here as messed up people who are redeemed by the blood of Christ and want him to be exalted. We don't want us to be exalted. And if we see it this way, eventually that catches people's eye. Wait a minute. What are they doing? Why are they, who are they worshiping? What? This is all part of what God uses to draw people, natural people, to himself to breathe his supernatural life into them. That's how you were all called, whether you know it or not, some way, shape, or form. Verse 9, their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring of the Lord, his blessed. The Lord has blessed. They'll see that something has been done among them that is of God. It's not of them. It doesn't say they look at them and see how great they are and let's go follow them. It's what has happened to these sinners like us. It's a glorious picture and it's all God's glory. Their descendants in the midst of the peoples, all who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. Ray Ortland says in his sermon on this passage, Isaiah wants to inspire us with such an admiration for our Messiah that we gladly exert ourselves for his cause in our generation. When we have an elevated view of Jesus, we just want to go live for him no matter what the cost. We don't, there's no cost that's too much for this God who has saved us. In verse 10 and verse 11, speaking on our behalf, our anointed messenger, he speaks for himself and those united to him. This is that dynamic aspect to this prophecy. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts. And as a garden causes what is grown In it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. That's where we are now. It doesn't feel like, it doesn't matter how you feel, it's what God's doing. And he's doing it the world over. And there are depressed points in time in various epochs of the church, in various local administrations of the church. But as the the world has grown, so has his church. And there are people um, worshiping in other parts of the world in mass numbers coming to him. He's never stopped this, this marching of his kingdom in his growth all the way until the time he comes again, whenever it is that he wills. Now, do we believe in this God who says he's doing this work? Is it enough for you that you've seen this fulfilled centuries of prophecies? Do we believe in the Messiah? It's right for us to constantly ask ourselves that. And we'll always say yes because of God's grace. That's the beauty. When it's presented, our hearts are moved by God to say, yes, 
Yes, Lord, again, I believe. You know, there are two responses, though, that people have to the Messiah. Back to my favorite story, or one of my favorite stories, um, of Jesus' capturing uh, Isaiah 61 in the synagogue of Nazareth. I want you to hear what happened to him after he tells us. You would think this son of Nazareth would come preaching the gospel, letting them know he's it. You would think there'd be an appreciation for this. But listen to his, one of his first sermons that we know of. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now listen to what the text says in Luke 4 next. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, and this is the key to the whole passage, what comes next? Whisper, whisper, is this not Joseph's son? What do you think that means? This, who is this guy? Wait a minute, I hear what he's saying. It's amazing, but he's a little... He's a little big on himself. He's just Joseph's son. Joseph's a carpenter, probably dead at this point. Isn't this just Joseph? Who, who does he think he is? He's not the son of some great rabbi. He doesn't have some awesome education. He's from Nazareth. I mean, who is this? I mean, we hear what he's saying, but is this not Joseph's son? Jesus hears this or knows this, and he says something amazing back at Without confronting it directly, and this would be a real awkward church moment if it happened right in the church. I think this is what happened. It'd be like me hearing someone whisper and then just calling you out, which happens sometimes in school chapel, but I wouldn't do it here. Uh, And so here we are, Jesus hears this, and then he says, doubtless you will quote to me this prophet, physician, heal yourself. So he hears them whispering about who's Joseph, and he could tell they're doubting. Physician, heal yourself. What does this mean? Well, in those days, physicians were basically snake oil salesmen. Um, They didn't have a lot of practical medical experience, practice of medicine experience. So commonly, uh, if someone was trying to sell you uh, some kind of remedy for your sickness, the person would say, let's see it work on you first. You go ahead and drink that stuff first. That's what someone would say before they buy it. So Jesus is telling them, I am the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. And they're they're doubting. And he says, I know what you're going to say next. Physician, heal yourself. You're going to say, prove it. Prove it to us even though he'd already proven by manifold different ways in which he had done things, even by that time. So then listen to what else Jesus says. Phys- uh, doubtless you will quote me this, this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Show us some more. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up, Three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. You know why that's important? Um, Israel was under God's judgment and discipline, so God sent a prophet, and the prophet didn't speak to the Israelites, he spoke to a Gentile. So now the people of Nazareth, Nazareth, they're not happy about that answer. So you're rejecting us because we're asking you some honest questions to prove yourself. You're rejecting us. And Jesus is saying, you know what? You know what? God has done before when there's unbelief, he just went to the Gentiles. He says something else that makes it even more clear. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. That really would have got the the, the inhabitants of Nazareth. Jesus is saying that we're not worthy of this message he has. But they were saying, we don't really believe you. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue responded to the altar call and came forward and changed their lives? 
After 17 verses of just as I am, four verses are fine. No, that's not what they say at all. They rose up. This is church setting now, everybody. Don't ever try this, please. They rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down in the cliff. They knew his father. They knew him. There's nothing they can have against him. On the basis of what he said, they were ready to kill him. And make no mistake, people who have heard the message and reject it, that is really what's in their heart about Christ. There are only two responses to Messiah. Yes, Lord, he is, you are the Messiah. Or get away from me. I don't want this message. What's your response to the Messiah? Let's pray. Lord God, we, we will greatly rejoice in you. Through Christ you have clothed us with garments of salvation and covered us with a robe of your righteousness. Please lift our vision of our Savior and our vision of you, our Lord Yahweh, the Sovereign Holy One, yet our Father who is in heaven. So inspire us with a worshipful admiration for our Messiah that we gladly exert ourselves for his cause in our lives today. I pray this for this church and for every believer here. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us respond by singing a hymn that I usually use for the opening hymn, but you will find as you sing these words, it's almost as if uh, the writer was using Isaiah 61. Let's stand together and sing 311, verse 1 and verse 2 as the elders come to prepare the table.